this week on Dig Me Out. I don't know how you could listen to the vocals especially and not think that he was trying to sound like Kurt Cobain. Tim and Jay review Dyslexicon by Dandelion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jason, it's episode 245. 245. Thank you, Timothy. Very good. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I went formal with your name there. Uh, Yeah. Mr. Minichi. Thank you, Mr. Ziak. That's good. We should refer to ourselves, each other. uh, (laughs) much more civilized yeah um last we week turn this in, into a victorian podcast uh the the fellow from the state <laughs> of texas will now chime in on his provide witty repartee on uh choice how of great listening. would it be if the upper crust did a podcast oh oh why don't the upper crust do a podcast that'd be great because podcasts don't exist in victorian times that's why. Well, they exist now, though. I know. It's a conundrum, Jay. Oh, I would listen to that. That would be so good. I just like reading the Facebook posts by their I manservant. Know. Oh, they're so good. Um, if people out there don't know what we're talking about, the Upper Crust is a rock and roll band from the Boston, Massachusetts area, and you should check them out because they're a lot of fun. Been around for a long time. Uh, they play, they play ACDC style rock, but they... Their gimmick is that they're French aristocrats. There you go. <laughs> so it's pretty pretty funny. So Jay, last week we reviewed an album that you selected. It was uh, Power Trippin' by the Almighty. And to balance that out, this week, before we get into our upcoming interviews and roundtables, we're doing an album that I picked out. Uh, this one is... Dyslexicon by the band Dandelion. Jay, were you familiar with either the album or the band? I want to say the name is familiar, but it is a very uh, stereotypical 90s band name. Mm -hmm. Uh, The album cover looks familiar, but then I realized uh, it sits in my iTunes library right next to the Dandy Warhols. uh, And it looks very similar to one of their album covers. Huh. Um, in terms of it's like a triptych, like broken into three and kind of retro imagery. So potentially I'm just reacting to the overall style that's reminiscent of other 90s bands as well. So were you not familiar with the single Weird Out? No, not at all. Really? Hmm. Mm-mm.
So that was my basis for picking this album. It's the only song that I knew on this record. Uh, I didn't know anything about the band. Hmm. I just remember liking this single. So I thought, you know, there was a lot of bands in the 90s that had just one single that, you know, made it to radio, whether it was college radio or actually made it to mainstream radio. I think this basically was like a college radio song that hit uh, a little bit of alternative mainstream radio, you know, alternative nation, 120 minutes, that kind of stuff. The video got played. Uh, Some other things happened, but not a huge hit, but enough of a hit that it, you know, got on my radar. Uh, But I didn't know the rest of the record. So good opportunity to take one of these bands that had a lone single and check out the rest of their record. So where did you hear, you heard the song on the radio? I know we probably played it at the radio station. We probably played the single at the radio station. It was probably, you know, this is, uh, this album came out in 1995. So prime radio station years for me. Maybe we had like the, uh, you know, the promo up or a poster or something. That's why, that's why the logo and artwork might be familiar. That's entirely possible. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk some history of Dandelion. History of the band. So the band formed in 1989 in Philadelphia by vocalist and guitarist Kevin Morpurgo, his brother bassist Mike Morpurgo, I think I'm pronouncing those correctly, um, guitarist Carl Hins, and drummer Dante Chimino. Between 1993 and 1994, Bayon Butler was also a member of the band uh, playing guitar, I believe. It's not necessarily spelled out well in their Wikipedia page. So, in 1990, the band recorded a demo tape called Silver, and it was reviewed in CMJ, and it received what was called a jackpot pick at the time, and it was the only the second demo to be chosen as a jackpot pick for whatever that's worth. Okay. So the important part is that that tape attracted the attention of Roughhouse Records, which was a label based in nearby Coshocton, New Jersey. Now, Jay, do you remember what Roughhouse Records was? No. It was a hip-hop label. Okay. It was homes to Cypress Hill, the Fugees, and some lesser-known artists like Schooly D and the Goats. So, and we'll get a look to this later. So they signed to Roughhouse. They put out their first album, I Think I'm Going to Be Sick, in 1993 on Roughhouse and then distributed through Columbia. And then in 1995, the album we're reviewing, Dyslexicon, released Roughhouse uh, at that point. Uh, they went through Sony. Bayon Butler, who played with the band between 93 and 94, left the band upon the release of Dyslexicon to form a, his own band called Shag. So they had a couple of singles. Uh, Weird Out was the only one that made any significant dent radio or video play. The video for Weird Out also got played on Beavis and Butthead. Their music was included in The Real World. And in the Edward Furlong movie, Brain Scan. We all remember <laughs> Brain Scan. Of course. Right. The classic. 
So a year after Dyslexicon in 1996, the band broke up, and the members of the band went on to do various other things with lesser-known bands that didn't ring any sort of bells with me, so I'm not going to go through the litany of bands that they've all been in. I mean, that's it for the history of Dandelion. If you have an album you would like to suggest for us to review, please head on over to our request to review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We got some Facebook feedback on this record. Dimitri Dumitri says, well, what can I say? The first album sounded like a poor man's mud honey. Up to the album title, I think I'm going to be sick versus touch me, I'm sick. This is poor man's Nirvana with a few 70s psychedelic overtones. It's competent, the production is fine, but it's very of its time, very typical, and ultimately quite generic. It's a time capsule for better or worse. I might play it if I want to remember what my younger days sounded like. P.S. Is it me, or did they try to make the singer look like a left-handed Kurt Cobain on the picture underneath the CD, if you have it? So I just happened to have picked up this CD. half Price Books in Columbus had a clearance sale at the local convention center and all cds were like a dollar so i bought like 40 cds there and i picked up this album and uh it is true if you take the cd out of the tray the lead singer well i'm guessing it's the lead singer or somebody's playing guitar and they have a just like distorted black and white picture and it kind of looks like her cobain <laughs> if, if you kind of look at it the right way yeah I mean, isn't this a little late to be, I don't know. I felt like... Milking the Nirvana train? Yeah, I feel like it's like a year or two late. Am I wrong there? No, I don't think it's too late. I mean, you know, Kurt's dead at this point. Might as well ape his voice. What are Silverchair and Bush up to at this point? You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. I think this is the prime. It's It's an open playing field. Anybody can jump in and... If Dimitri's right that the first album was a poor man's mud honey, well, that's not going to sell. But a poor man's Nirvana, that that might sell. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Royland says, wow, I don't think I've listened to this album since 95 or 96, even though I still own a copy. Don't remember much about it other than Weird Out, which got quite a bit of airplay up here at this time. and I, st- Which got quite a bit of airplay up at this time and I still like. Oh, okay. I see what he's saying. Did you just have a stroke? No, I couldn't understand his sentence structure. Okay. Just want to make sure sure you're still with us. Yeah, going to have to refresh myself on this one. Well, I hope you got to it, Joe. So a couple of notes on this record. Um, Mentioned that it was released on Rough House. Rough House is primarily a hip-hop label. It was run by uh, Phil and Joe Nicolo, who were producers. Phil Nicolo is the producer on this record, and he's... Resume includes Urge Overkill, John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Amy Grant, Cypress Hill, Sting, Anthrax, and Aerosmith. So he's got a pretty solid (laughs) production history. Yeah. Now, before we get into the actual reviewing the record, I just want to point out, in 1993 or 4, I guess it was 93, or maybe it was 92, I have to say, 92 or 93, I'm not sure exactly the year they signed to Rough House, but a hip-hop label signed an alternative rock band. Yeah. That's how hot alternative rock music was in, like, 92. Right. And now we, it would be had, the opposite. We, that's been a, a little bit of a theme, right, through through the years of doing the shows. Maybe not hip-hop labels, but just what well, we talked about it when uh, Aaron Perino was on, right? They were on Roadrunner. 
Right. Just um, weird things happening with either labels going outside of their comfort zone or mergers happening and, you know, things being combined together in odd ways. So, yeah, wild time for labels in the 90s. Yeah. So, Jay, since uh, I suggested this one, that means you get to go first. Mm. Why don't you give me some some thoughts on this record? Tell me what you liked about this album. I think Dimitri kind of did my review for me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like the production uh, overall. I think it's, you know, they capture the energy of the band, uh, but it sounds, you know, pretty clean. Um, mm-hmm. You can crank it. Uh, it's actually interesting. The drums, when you hear the drums by themselves, sometimes they're very uh, metal sounding. I mean, they almost sound like uh, the drums off the Metallica Black album, like uh, just out of the way the they're mic'd and also the reverb and stuff, which is not what you would expect uh, production wise for a band like this. But you know, when it all comes together, it it works pretty well. Uh, you know, I think there's some hooks on here every now and then. There's some that are, that are interesting. I think there's some psychedelic turns, which Dimitri mentioned, that are uh, welcome. Kind of deviates from the formula, the loud, soft Nirvana formula. I mean, they even go, I mean, to some, at some points on this record, especially early on, I mean, some of these songs sound like they could have been Nirvana B-sides or... Nirvana yeah. songs played backwards, <laughs> like you know the riff, just take the riffs and play them backwards, and basically, hey, new song. Um, so when they deviate from that, um, it's appreciated. And I find the second half of the record, they to me they, sent, they, they tend to do that more, whether it be a psychedelic turn or even something like uh, track six, retard, which gets into almost a rocket from the crypt kind of sound um has a lot more punk energy to it same way that the psychedelic turns uh you know divert you from the obvious nirvana comparisons the uh sometimes they you know they use punk rock in a similar way to mm-hmm. go in a different direction which is again welcome you know guitar wise it's it's pretty boilerplate you know a lot of the riffs aren't incredibly inventive um you know the tones are good enough like i said production wise uh you know uh, <clears throat> for the most part you know, drums and, and bass are pretty straightforward um, in a very Nirvana-esque kind of model. There is a song or two where, you know, the bass, I think the last track, Melon from Heaven, uh, really takes over the song, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it almost sounds like a different band. Uh, the vocal sounds different. Um, it's it's um, just produced completely differently. The guitar is kind of pulled back for a lot of the song. Mm-hmm. Not in a quiet, like loud, quiet way, but like it's just more about the bass and the drums and the vocal 
you know, you, you kind of can see in that song, you know, some of the, the ability of the band as musicians, which is cool. And there's moments here and there. Another band I heard quite a bit is the Vines, which also get compared to Nirvana a lot. I guess oh, they yeah. were they were what later in the a couple years later, right? I think they were like ninety nine or two thousand. They were like late nineties. Yeah, the, I think the the thing that uh, pulled them out for me though is there's a little bit of a on a song like whatever, uh, Trek Nine. It gets into almost like a British punk kind of energy, which I think is, you know, one of the flavors that the vine, the vines always used, you know, it has a bit of a, um, you know, kind of a seventies or even like a sixties mod, like, you know, like that era of the who kind of, uh, energy to it. And sometimes, um, melodies that are reminiscent of that. So, you know, those things pop out here and there, which is again, a nice, twist on the nirvana formula um when you hear those but you know for the most part i th- you know i'm right in line with dimitri you know there's some left turns here and there but for the most part it's it's very derivative of nirvana what say you to me well you know i picked this album based on the weird out song um which i still think is a good single good 90s alternative rock single in in context of the whole record, though, I definitely get the Nirvana vibe. Even the way he sings and the way they produce his vocal, uh, the way that Kurt Cobain will like reach the end of a line and stretch out a word or a phrase, and yeah, they'll double even, they'll double even, the vocal to create that even, like. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say he even uses all Kurt Cobain's voices. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he uses like the the mid tempo Kurt Cobain voice, and then the screaming, you know, bleach and punk rock, uh, Kurt Cobain, the bark, the wine. Yep. yep. So it made me not dislike the single, but it just made me more suspicious of the overall motivations of the record. And I'm with you. The songs like track six and seven, false alarm, and uh, whatever, like. It makes him break out of that a little bit more um, because of a faster tempo. So he can't do that like Kurt Cobain. Um, I don't know how to. I don't know what to how to describe it, but it's it's at the like the um now like the you know that kind of like repeat kind of yeah, yeah that yeah. thing. I don't know what that's called. It's a little but whiny. It's a little, yeah. Uh, but with the faster they play, the less he can do that. And that's where they shine a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like Melon from Heaven uh, because of the fact that it's, even though it's not fast, he doesn't do that.
that that song almost approaches a shoegaze feel at times. Like sort of mid song, it gets I don't know washy and big, and the vocals kind of you know I don't know. Like it's definitely not like anything else on the record. Yeah, I mean that could be you're, you're right in it. It has a shoegaze feel. the The vocals are very sort of um, lethargic compared to what's on the rest of the record, and they're not placed up front. So the you have that guitar riff that's sort of like I don't know. It's it's more of a lead than than a chord riff, and um, the bass the vocals- and the drums really carry it. And the vocal is very breathy. Yeah. Like, it's produced completely different than a lot of the rest of the record. Like, he's up on the mic kind of really doing a, 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 a vocal that's got a lot of air in it. It's not really, like, forceful. It's more like a like a shoegaze-style vocal. You know, it's kind of pulled back in a different register. Yeah, I think it was just, you know, in a lot of the mid-tempo stuff, like Trailer Park Girl or What a Drag... Those sorts of songs, they just kind of sounded like facsimiles of, of better Nirvana songs. Yeah, and, so similar. And the problem is that, all right, well, the vocals sound a lot it's like sounds like a Kurt Cobain. What's the drum and the bass and the guitar doing? They're just playing. Yeah, they're playing. I guess interesting things, but not things that are. Nothing is unique uh, yeah no nobody's pushing the song in another direction no just, okay there's, there's here's the riff now i will say that they do that well like mm-hmm. they get the th- that thick tight sound you know it, it sounds um bombastic at times they capture the energy it sounds full but and at times that that's that's good enough you know, I found myself there were moments on this record where, you know, you're just kind of blasting it and you just appreciate that part of it. Like you can mm-hmm. get into it at that level. But then it takes, you know, as soon as you start paying attention, you're like, oh, geez, that sounds exactly like this Nirvana song or that sounds exactly, you know what I mean? Like, right. Had I not been so lazy, I probably could have gone through the Nirvana catalog and pulled out like, Okay, this section sounds like this song. This section sounds like this song. Um, If I felt like it comes that close. And did it feel like to you, in terms of the guitar playing, like it could have been a three piece with just some overdubs? Like it didn't feel like on a lot of the record that the second guitar, oh, not at all, was making any sort of impact. No, I I assumed it was a three piece when I listened to it. I didn't recognize it as two guitars at all. Yeah, it's a it's a two piece or it's a four piece with two guitars. Hmm. So that's um that's something that like you know you've got an opportunity here to push these songs a little bit. I mean, even Christ, like Bush would occasionally do something interesting with the second guitar. Yeah. For speaking of ripoffs of you know Nirvana and and sure or comparisons like you know everything Zen for example, has that like slide guitar part, like at least they added something original to it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Anything with a second guitar, it's an opportunity to like counter, you know, I mean, if you want the, 
<clears throat> say you want to be straightforward and have a you know a good thick simple core of the band you can do that with you know the rhythm guitar and the bass and the drums for the most part but then it, if you got that second guitar you know that can do something that is a little bit um you know counter to that to to, to give it a twist here and there which doesn't happen at all on this record just for a comparison stake um bush's 16 stone is their debut record it has you know everything that zen and machine head uh come down little things you know just a ton of singles glycerine on that song on that album that came out december of 94 hmm. so you're talking end of 94 um okay. silver cheers five yeah silver cheers frog stomp came out march of 95 okay. and um this album came out august of 95 so you're talking about basically nine months between Bush and this. Mm. So it's definitely in the Cobain past April of 94. So in terms of the bands that were considered the closest in terms of sounding and, and trying to capture the, the Nirvana vibe, you know, Bush was accused of it. Silverchair was you know, Nirvana in pajamas, you know, little <laughs> kids playing, playing Nirvana. And there's a clear connection or, or attempt to make it a connection to Nirvana with this record in terms of the sound of the record and sound of the vocals. And I don't know, just, uh, I was hoping like the, the single for weird out, it has that, like, um, that drum beat that kind of reminds me of, almost like a 60s group at the beginning that dune you know that sort of beat so i was hoping that this was going to be like a little bit more playful of a record and not get trapped in sort of the 90s downer just it's it's kind of uh predictable in terms of its moping weird out has like a cool kind of vibe to it where i you know an album not of that song over and over again but of more playful songs would have fit in with like, I think other bands. Yeah. Like say flaming lips or tripping Daisy or like, I feel like they could have gone in a more playful direction with the songwriting instead of just, you know, rehashing Nirvana tunes over and over again. There you go. Good night, everybody. Yeah. I mean, it gets it. it, it yeah. It, um, it's either mopey or it does like the like trailer park girl, which is like, you know, the tr- the the play on the trashy trashy theme with you know at times you know crude lyric, unexpected like you know crude lyric kind of thing uh, that pops out here on the record every now and then, mm-hmm. um, and then there's the you know the self self loathing kind of stuff. I guess in hindsight. I appreciate when they have a little bit of fun, which is, I think, where you're coming from, too. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. The self-loathing stuff doesn't really doesn't work as well. Uh, at the time, I think it, you know, it was the cool thing. But now it's like, oh, uh, you know, what were you so miserable about? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, you know, I, I was I think it was just them sort of 
capturing a trying to recapture a, a successful sound. No, they were signed to a quote unquote indie in Roughhouse, but that was connected to a major label. So they weren't going to be making, you know, pavement records. This was a label that was producing the Fugees and Cypress Hill and, you know, big hip hop artists. They were looking for, I'm sure they were looking for a successful mainstream rock band. Maybe it was, maybe it was the influence of the producer who had worked with big artists, who was pushing them to, mm-hmm. you know, fill the gap left behind by Cobain's death and, you know, with these other bands swooping in, trying to capture that sound or I don't know what, but, um, you know, it's interesting in that the first album is compared to Mudhoney by Dimitri. You know, that, that's almost like the the dry run of trying to capture the Seattle sound. Well, first you go after like the, one of the bands responsible for the Seattle sound happening in Mudhoney. And then you go after the second record, you actually go after the Big Fish and try to capture the Nirvana sound. So, I don't know. Don't mean to sound like accusatory that this band was like, you know, <laughs> trying to um, do something uh, underhanded. But I don't know how you could listen to the vocals, especially, and not think that he was trying to sound like Kurt Cobain on a lot of the record. Probably eighty yeah. percent of it. Right. So, no doubt. Let's talk about our overalls on this, and I'm not talking about our our uh, farmware, Jay. I'm talking about our overall ratings on this record um since i picked it i'm gonna go first i'm responsible for this take ownership i'm gonna say that there's probably an ep here um like i said i like weird out and i like the faster tunes so i would take uh retard or retard however you want to say that um false alarm uh whatever and then i would put melon from heaven at the end of that so that's a a decent five song EP right there. I think out of the 12. What about you? Uh, I've got about five or six here. I've got what a drag, super cool retard tapped, whatever. And melon from heaven. So, you know, more of the back end of the record. Uh, yeah. A mix of the faster stuff and the psychedelic stuff. So yeah, I'm at, I'm at an EP. All right. I think that that's a fair rating from both of us. We yeah. both landed in some of the similar spots in terms of our songs. So they have, they have a good sound. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like they're competent musicians who play well together, which at the end of the day, it can go a long way. You know, it's right. You can have maybe subpar material and be derivative. If you can at least do that, you know, I'm sure live they were, you know, decent enough to to watch. You wouldn't walk out. Right. Well, Jay, I'm going to hang on to my $1 Dandelion CD that I picked up at the uh, clearance sale. Nice. And um, I'll just listen to the uh, five songs that I enjoy. And maybe over the years, I'll grow to appreciate the uh, the other tunes. But right now, it's not uh, it's not working for me. So we'll see. Uh, if uh, what we're doing is working for you, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And as always, if you would like to suggest an album for us to review, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and 
request a review on our request a review page. Coming up next week, actually next coming weeks, next or <clears throat> next couple weeks, we're gonna have some interviews. We got some uh, roundtables coming up. Good stuff on the horizon. We're gonna be doing some interesting interviews that uh, are gonna be fun, different for us. So I'm not gonna give too much away, but we got some cool things up on the horizon, and we have a, a roundtable, Jay, that I know you're excited about, which is our. We're, we're doing something where we're going to take successful bands from the 80s, bands that sold like at least 10 million records in the 80s, and we're going to analyze and dig into how they survived the 90s if they did so. Mm. And our first one up is going to be Van Halen. We're going to have some very cool guests for that. Not saying Eddie, Alex. <laughs> Maybe a Michael Anthony, maybe a Sammy, maybe a Gary. You could probably get Gary Sharon. Gary Sharon, absolutely. You could get Gary. What's he doing? He's doing dinner theater. He's not. Oh, man, uh, he's extremes not out there. They're torn. Are they? Good oh, yeah. for them. They're headliners on those festivals. Those, you know, 80s rock themed festivals. Good for them. They had a few hits. They did. What, what were they? More than, more than what we can say for Danny Lyon. That's true. That's very true. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review dyslexic 